Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Myung-Hee Lee, a postdoctoral fellow at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. Today, we invite Dr. Benjamin Silverstein for his expertise on North Korea, especially Sweden-North Korea relations. Benjamin Silverstein received his PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania. His research agenda focuses broadly on North Korean society in the past and present. At the Safra Center, he is conducting a research project on ties between North Korean market actors and local government officials, exploring tensions and ties between the state and society in the North Korean market economy. Benjamin is currently working on a fascinating research project on the past and present of Sweden-North Korea relations at the Swedish Institute for Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today, Ben. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's talk about the fascinating project you're working on right now. So why is Sweden-North Korea relations a relevant topic? Yeah, that's a very good question because it sounds very random, right? Like it's not U.S.-China relations or China-Korea relations. It's mm-hmm. a tiny country, Sweden, tiny country, but very significant country, North Korea. Usually when I meet people who work on North Korea, research North Korea, and then I mention that I'm originally from Sweden, for a lot of people that rings a bell of, oh, Sweden, that it's a country that has a, they've done all these seemingly random, but still somewhat, I would argue, systematic things of arranging 1.5 or track two dialogue talks between North Korean officials and US and South Korean, sometimes even policy professionals, and then sort of acting as a convener like Sweden did in the talks with, or in the preparatory talks for the uh, second summit of uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Stockholm was the site of a very important preparatory meeting for that. And I mean, I would say these are just a couple of examples. There's been a Swedish aid worker living for periods of time in North Hambyong province at a potato farm in North Korea, which I, you couldn't really say that about many nationalities in the world, except for North Korean. But I would say also, if you look at it sort of from a Just the objective hard facts is that Sweden was the first Western country to open an embassy in Mm -hmm. Pyongyang in North Korea in 1975. So already there you have some sort of, Mm -hmm. that does make Sweden different, that it it wanted to take this step and be the first at this time to do so. And so two, one embassy in South Korea, one embassy in North Korea, and also a presence in the uh, United Nations, the Neutral Nations Supervisory Committee, the Surveillance Commission in the Demilitarized Zone. Because also we have to remember also a very important part of the context that we should give your listeners is that North Korea has very few international relations. Comparatively speaking, North Korea is, you know, there's quote unquote isolated, although not as much as people think, I would say, and, and lacks formal diplomatic relations with a large number of countries. So the context, I think, is very important in that sense that North, because of North Korea's isolation, yeah. it sort of requires further explanation. Why did the North Korean government feel comfortable enough to send two North Korean soccer players to play in a local Swedish soccer team in Uppsala? Things like that. So it's little details that sort of build up to the big picture. Yeah, obviously. I mean, that's actually really very interesting relations between these two 
you know, small countries. I mean, you mentioned here and there about some of those pieces of evidence that they are building pretty close relations. But then briefly, how did Sweden and North Korea come to have relatively close relations and why and how? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. And it's sort of, so I, I should say that the research that I'm working on with my colleagues at the Swedish Institute for Foreign Affairs, we're, we're still in the middle of the research process. So I might have a different impression now than I, than I will in a year from now when we've gone through more archival materials. But I would say, in a sense, Sweden and North Korea have come to have relatively close relations from sort of, it's almost like a past-dependent story. The key part of the story begins before Sweden and North Korea opened formal relations and before the establishment of the Swedish embassy, because I don't know how true this is, but one thing that a couple of people have told me, sort of this North Korean, a common, common impression of, of Swedes in North Korea, among at least in some circles, according to what, I, what I've heard from Swedish diplomats and aid workers and other people who've served in North Korea, is that quite a few people, at least in the government circles, know that the Swedish field hospital in Busan in the Korean War treated both North and South Korean soldiers. And I think that that, to me, struck a very deep chord when I, when I heard that sort of people, you know, not, not maybe not the general public in North Korea, but at, at least mm-hmm. some officials are aware of this. And that, I think, tells us something about Sweden as a country was already in on the Korean peninsula from the Korean War and onwards. Sweden was, and I mean, I think it's always debatable where you really start the history of anything, right? But I think another very important part of the story is Sweden's uh, politics of neutrality. Sweden has adopted, and arguably until this year, has had a a foreign policy doctrine of strict neutrality, of not taking sides between, I mean, in in World War II, Sweden never got invaded, and a big part Mm -hmm. of the reason was its neutrality in the war. And it is the same thing was true for Sweden's foreign policy in the Cold War. So neutrality has sort of been a long-running historical thread of Swedish foreign policy. And I think also, you know, this is not just Sweden, but also Denmark and Norway, I think, also have a sense of in their foreign policy of sort of wanting to spread values and talk to both sides of every conflict and sort of be very open and and pro-dialogue in a sense, almost no matter who the dialogue partners are. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also part of why Sweden decided to to open relations with North Korea in 1973 and then again open an embassy in 1975 is neutrality made it possible, made it really, Mm -hmm. made it into a a logical piece of the overall puzzle. Here is North Korea, a country that already back then was pretty comparatively isolated. Like really before the 1970s, there weren't any substantial diplomatic contacts or peace talks between the two Koreas. And this is something that when in, in sort of the general spirit of the times of detente in the Cold War from the late 1960s, and which also arguably led to the Red Cross talks between the two Koreas, in the early 1970s, all of this sort of opened up an opportunity Mm -hmm. for a country like Sweden, who, again, already wanted to keep this profile of sort of facilitating dialogue and maintaining contacts with both sides. It became possible for Sweden with the international context in the early 1970s to open relations with North Korea. But, and I think that this is sort of the more I would say less conventional and more interesting part of the story is that in the early 1970s, Swedish enterprises were incredibly interested in going into North Korea. Big Swedish companies, like some of the companies that are the most foundational for the Swedish economy, saw North Korea as a very attractive investment opportunity. And it actually, it makes sense if you look at a map, like both Sweden and North Korea have a lot of 
minerals and you know, things like that. And so we, we have a Sweden has a big mining industry and North Korea has a lot of mineral resources. The, the final part of the story of when relations open is that North Korea initiated this drive to purchase capital goods, like factory parts and, and entire mm -hmm. factories also for that matter, and sort of turn towards the outside world economically in a different sense yeah. from the early mm -hmm. 1970s and onward. I mean, it was, and this led to, I mean, North Korea racked up massive debts, but that was part of it, that, that North Korea was suddenly, mm -hmm. it was seen sort of as the next, and I think this is this is something that repeats through history, but, but people often see for in every generation, someone sees North Korea as the next big sort of Asian, Asian giant or, or, or dragon or whatever you want to call it. And this is also true back in the 1970s. So the I would say the main reason for Sweden deciding to not only establish relationships in 1973, which it mm -hmm. did together with the rest of the Nordic countries, but also to also open an embassy in 1975, a big mm -hmm. part of it was really industrial promotion and not about sort of lofty ideals of political dialogue, but about um, promoting the domestic industry and creating another trading partner for Sweden. That's really interesting. So you were basically mentioning about like two countries' diplomatic relations as well as the economic relations. So can we define like relations here? What do you mean by relations? And like, what are we talking about? And has the nature of Sweden-North Korea relations changed over time? That's a great question. I mean, it's I'm an historian by training and not a not an international relations scholar per se. But I think that when we when we talk about you know relations can be many different things, right? It can mm -hmm. be political relations where Sweden has also tried to play a role vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, and it can be about economic relations like trade. And I think that's that's where sort of the path dependency that I mentioned earlier. That's sort of where that starts to come in. That Sweden had a presence in the 1970s in North Korea. That was where a key part of it was financial. Swedish financial interests. But that changes over time. What ends up happening is the second part of the story of North Korea's drive for purchasing capital goods is that they racked up massive debts that they then couldn't or chose not to pay to creditors like Sweden. So Sweden still has an outstanding debt of, I don't actually want to say a number because I want to make sure it's, it's not entirely clear how big the debt is right now, but it's still, it's still very much there. So that changed when it became clear to Swedish officials and Swedish bureaucrats that North Korea is not going to pay their, uh, their debts on time. Like when it became because it's a very it's it's a pretty unusual thing that a country just doesn't pay mm -hmm. need a contract by paying mm -hmm. for for shipments and deliveries so when it became clear to them that that north korea is not going to mm -hmm. again either be able to or choose not to pay it's debatable whether you know what the truth is but it changes from a relationship sort of focused on trade but then it becomes much more important for sweden to to get back or to, to try to salvage whatever they can of the debt so that becomes a much bigger focus you see this in diplomatic cables between Stockholm and Pyongyang, between the wow. embassy and, and the foreign ministry that quite a lot, I mean, it's it's Swedish officials seem just, it seems incomprehensible to them that their their counterpart is just choosing not to pay. So yeah, obviously that becomes a big focus for many, many years. And Sweden was, there were serious discussions and, and plans for, for closing the embassy in Pyongyang also wow. as a, I mean, because and the argument went, 
So I mean, what year was that? There, there were debates going on about this through the 1980s and early 1990s as well. The foreign ministry considering whether or not to close it, because I mean, having an embassy is a significant financial commitment. And from the point of view of of the Swedish government, the only justification for having an embassy is they open it for trade promotion purposes. And now there is no trade with North Korea. Rather, North Korea has a gigantic debt to Sweden. You know, then why should we keep the embassy open? And for a few years, they they actually had the embassy open without having an embassy ambassador posted. So there was a sort of drawback in a sense. And then I would say in in the 1990s with North Korea, it's like with the demise of the Soviet bloc and the fall of the Soviet Union and the economic collapse in North Korea. I mean, that's also a story that I, you know, it's you could see in part of the reason that North Korea didn't pay or didn't meet their commitments to pay is the economy of North Korea started becoming much, much less efficient, productive, and started sort of going downhill already in the yeah. 1980s. Like it was never, I just, I think that people tend to, to focus on, you know, the 1980s is when, it, is when it all blew apart, but you see, definitely see roots of it in the 1970s and 80s as well. So when the North Korean economy collapsed in the 1990s, there was a, there, there was another shift sort of towards Sweden coming in as humanitarian aid provider. That's humanitarian assistance. But actually, it's interesting, in the 1980s as well, you also see in the archives that Swedish companies are again interested in North Korea, interested in investment opportunities. It looks strange when you're reading these documents and you see yeah. first all these companies that are investing and not get not getting anything out of it, like literally getting. And then you, you know, a couple of decades later, all these companies are sort of, they have the same, roughly the same way of reasoning that North Korea has. It's a low, low cost, like low labor costs, relatively low cost of raw material, things like that. And there's also an assumption that the regime is going to collapse any day. I think that's really, or either collapse or enact drastic reforms. Like it was really expected. It's always fun to go back and look at all the wrong predictions people have made about North Korea. But I totally understand why it looked that way at the time, because, yeah. you know, what choice do they have? What's What else can you do? And then you have China next door that's shown that this yeah. is very doable to implement a big reform program. But that does not happen as we as we now know. So the last, and I, I would say a sort of a parallel to the A-track, and that's the last, not shift, but a sort of a new stream, a new trend that enters into the Swedish-North Korean relationship. And it's not entirely clear where exactly we should date this to, but sort of the inception of track one and two dialogues and capacity building programs for North Koreans in Sweden or for or run by Swedish aid organizations in North Korea. That's also something that starts to become more common in the from the early 2000s and on. Words. There was a, uh, how do I translate this? The Swedish Confederation of Enterprises, their international council, like they have an organization for international projects and they do, at least have done in the, in the past, business training in countries like North Korea. So, so that's when... I mean, I'm just curious, what's the rationale behind doing this capacity building? The, the, the social political system of Sweden and the Scandinavian countries, I think, is also relevant here because Sweden is not a capital. I mean, it is a capitalist country, mm-hmm. but globally, it's also known as sort of the one of the symbolizing countries and societies of social democracy. So mm-hmm. there's a famous allegedly Kim Jong-il said to uh, Madeleine Albright when she visited North Korea that he was looking at the Swedish welfare state as a model for North Korea. I'm not convinced that that actually Mm -hmm. 
that it was said in sincerity or that he knew enough about the more market-friendly elements of the Swedish welfare state. But in any case, it's I think that this general impression of, again, neutrality of, of a country that isn't, mm. it's not like politically, politically poisonous or p- potentially politically dangerous for North Korea to engage with a country like Sweden. You know, it's not like you're, you're, you're not suddenly opening relations with the United States. Like it's a very different type of profile. And I think, again, the neutrality really really matters i see yeah so i guess my next question is about north korea's foreign policy so like what can we learn about north korean foreign policy from examining this relation i think that to me more than anything i think it it confirms a trend and a pattern that people Mm -hmm. have identified when studying north korean foreign policy of sort of opportunism Mm -hmm. is a very important thing the fact that North Korea saw financial potential financial gain in the relationship with, with Sweden has always been, I think, the most crucial driver. Like, it's not based on an idea of revamping the relationships with the outside world whenever North Korea has engaged, uh, particularly with Sweden. It's when there's there's an opportunity to be found there. But I do also think that, I mean, there's a lot of debates about these institutional differences in North Korea that like the, the foreign ministry is more and more pushing more for open foreign relations and things like that. And sort of the more party conservatives tend to, to push the other way. But I mean, I think that also North Korea has in a way that probably stems from a genuine willingness to learn from other countries and to actually bring back lessons and implement some sort of change in their own country. I think you can also see the North Korean willingness to to do all these little things, like the soccer players in Sweden. You see mm-hmm. a Swedish think tank, the Institute mm-hmm. of Security and Defense Policy, they've hosted a North Korean scholar, a North Korean visiting researcher. I think that the fact that, like, I think it, it does matter that North Korea sees Sweden as less politically tainting, in a sense, as less politically risky, because it's, again, a, a social democratic welfare state, mm-hmm. and also for a very practical reason that North Korea has an embassy here. So that's also a very important uh, important factor. But yeah, I think that probably my main takeaway is opportunism and which I suppose, I mean, a lot of countries engage in this. It's not, it's not North, North Korea isn't alone in that necessarily, but it's a very clear trait. And I think it comes out very clearly in bonds with Sweden as well. Let's talk about like the Trump-Kim negotiations a little bit. Do you think Sweden played a role in, in these negotiations? So I would say that Sweden played a role on the margins in that episode. And it's an interesting case to look at for Sweden as sort of mediator is the wrong word. But again, one of the things that Sweden has tended to do vis-a-vis North Korea is to, to facilitate meetings, to sort of act as a neutral venue for meetings between North Korea and counterparties from, from the United States and South Korea and other countries as well. So one of the preparatory meetings was held in Stockholm, and it was at a during the Trump Kim negotiations. It was in fall 2019, and it was when things were pretty shaky. So th- this turned out to be a quite important meeting to pave the way for the Hanoi meeting, which then ended, as we all know, not very well. But like Sweden's little part in the Trump Kim dialogue mm-hmm. also raises a very important question to me of the role of is it the role of Sweden as a state that is making these things possible? Or is it really that you have individuals within the state apparatus who push for it very hard? I mean, there, Sweden has a current ambassador to Singapore, Mr. Ken Pashtef, who's a former member of parliament for the Social Democrats. He has personally been very involved in both. So he's traveled to North Korea many times and has maintained contacts with people both in Pyongyang and at the North Korean embassy here. And he ended up working not as an individual, but like 
his efforts during this time period were very significant for making, you know, whatever significance we attribute to Sweden, Sweden as a facilitator dialogue, whatever role Sweden was able to play, a big part of it was probably because of Ambassador Hashtag, who was personally very involved. I and see. then again, how big this role for Sweden really turned out to be in the big picture, that's a different question. It's a slightly different, different story, but nonetheless. So I think oftentimes Swedish engagement with North Korea has been driven by people who arguably, as you and I have, who get stuck on North Korea, who mm-hmm. want to keep learning about this place and who then become personally engaged in trying to trying to make some sort of contribution to opening, to bringing in outside information to North Korea, exposing North Korean mm-hmm. officials to different societies and things like that. But yeah, again, I think that the role of individuals is very important. Interesting. So, so far, we've been talking about the politics of neutrality in Sweden, and that played an important role in, in shaping the relations between, between Sweden and North Korea. But then recently, we are observing a new development here. So Sweden is increasingly being integrated into NATO, and it's about to be joining the NATO and how that could possibly impact Sweden-North Korean relations? That's a great question. It's going to be an important test case, if you will. It'll be a very good way of, of sort of trying to understand, is this primarily a relationship that's driven by individuals, or is it driven by Sweden's place in the international order? And by it's how much, like, does Swedish neutrality matter more than passionate individuals who work to strengthen these bonds. So my gut instinct right as of now is that no, it probably will not significantly change the Sweden-North Korean relationship. It's a relationship that just North Korea wants it, Sweden wants it. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, South Korea and the United States also want it. Both of these countries benefit from having a sort of a close partner like like Sweden, which, you know, as close as Sweden is with North Korea, it's not close with North Korea at all, but whatever context Sweden has with North Korea, its relations with South Korea are infinitely closer. And also its relationships with, with relationship with the United States. So both South Korea and the US also benefit from having this channel open, having this way of parsing the pulse of, of Pyongyang through another country. So because nobody's really interested in seeing the relationship get worse, I, I yeah. don't see why it would necessarily, but you do never know. I, I want to be very cautious and in making any predictions for the future. But I I would be surprised. But on the other hand, the ties between North Korea and Sweden, like the degree to which they've been active has fluctuated a lot over time. So in certain times, like when Sweden was the held the the chairmanship over the European Union, and the Swedish prime minister decided to to visit North Korea and meet with Kim Jong-il as Mm -hmm. part of the Swedish chairmanship over the European Union, like that is an example of a very specific point in time where Mm -hmm. interest and engagement rose very quickly. But obviously, it wasn't sustained at that level. And so it, it very much, it's very much dependent on these individual events. And, and it's also gotten a lot harder to do. Like, as the Track 2 and Track 1.5 dialogues and sort of capacity building education for North Koreans, all that becomes harder to do when the nuclear issue gets hotter. That, that's, that's, it's very, very clear. So, so, and because there's been so little progress, you know, there's been so little optimism in the past few years for, well, except for the Trump-Kim, that, 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 that period and the sort of uh, Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un um, summits. So what, what I'm trying to say is that whatever Swedish engagement with North Korea happens, it's very much contingent 
upon mm. the global situation about what's yeah. happening between North and South Korea, yeah. North Korea yeah. and the United States. When there starts to be more movement in those relations, the North Korean and South Korea or North Korea and the United States, that's when Sweden can come in and sort of try to contribute to that yeah. sort of development, to contribute to making it happen. It's not so much that Sweden is able to take its own initiatives, but it's, again, it's it's much more about contributing to something that, that's already happening in a sense. So I think that Sweden's relations with North Korea will depend more on uh, North Korea's relations with other countries rather than the NATO specifically. And I think we should also, I mean... Sweden's entry into NATO or, you know, future very likely entry into NATO is part of the same story as North Korea's increasing closeness with, with Russia and China. It's part of the same global polarization. So in yes. that sense, you know, one might wonder when North Korea doesn't have the same interest in negotiating with the United States, because I don't think that they're as interested in that today as they were a few years ago. If that's not as much of a, a goal for North Korea, you know, if having these, if communicating messages to, to South Korea and the United States of engaging with the Western world in a place that isn't politically sensitive like Sweden, then North Korea's interest in doing all these things are probably going to decrease, I think. So this would be because of its increasing closeness with Russia and China. So it also begs the question of if, a, if Sweden is a convening power, well, is there going to be anything to convene? What is there going to be to convene? So I think it, the, the question depends a lot on North Korea's relations with, with other countries than Sweden. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to watch out for. I mean, you mentioned about the global polarization, you know, like other Trump lab and Western Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's what your specialty. Yeah. So what do you think? Like, what's your gut feeling about North Korea's role in this polarization trend? Mm. So do yeah. you think that North Korea will join? Like, I mean, they are always, as you said, they are always opportunistic, like even in the past. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. Like, it's not that North Korea, like, if you look at the goals, the stated goals of the North Korean regime and its actions, they're often very, very different. Like, it's been yeah. a stated goal. North Korea to decrease its dependence on China for many, many years, for example. And yet, whenever possible, North Korea tries to export as much as possible to China. So, but at the same time, like the perhaps the most overlooked North Korean interest in this mm -hmm. is just having an, another sort of friendly country in the world other than China, having another country to trade with and to, to maintain some sort of collaboration and dialogue with, like having Russia become another friendly country toward North Korea in a genuine sense, that would mean so, so much strategically mm -hmm. for North Korea, because then you're not only, you're not trading, you're not doing 96% mm -hmm. of your foreign trade anymore with one single partner with China. If you can diversify that in any way, that would be such, such a, 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 big, a big thing for North Korea. So I think that it depends on whatever benefits are available. But yes, I mean, the more, yeah, I think that North Korea is very eager to join a, a global bloc where it can have relations with foreign countries, big powers in a much less complicated way. You know, Russia and China, they, they couldn't care less about North Korea. Like, yeah, it's much simpler. Yeah, thank you so much for, for you know, having this conversation with me. This is a really fascinating topic and I can't wait to read the actual output of this project. Thank, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I love it, talking about this. So hope, hope we can do it again sometime. Yes. I am Younghee Lee. And thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.